Welcome to the Gary and Stein Sports Show, along with Will Stein. I'm Troy Gary. On today's podcast, or excuse me, our podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Anchor, and Amazon. Uh, also, uh, various other platforms, so check your favorite streaming service for that. On today's show, we're joined by Emmy winner broadcaster, or excuse me, television producer, with one of uh, three, over three different decades of experience producing programs for live and on ESPN, ESPN2, as well as the Golf Channel, uh, Keith Herschel. And Keith, uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Troy and Bill, William. It's a great, it's a, a pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. All right, Will, what do you got for Keith to start <laughs> off? So the first thing I want to address is that we've all been watching the U.S. Open the last few days. What do you feel about the top Justin Thomas ruling yesterday? He went on to say some explicit explicit stuff after he hit that shot right yeah. by a sprinkler head or drainage system whatever you want to call it what would you have done in that as an official if you were behind the scenes but you know, i watched it yeah it was that's a great great question and i watched it with with a lot of interest because uh you know when i was obviously when we were producing golf for golf channel you know rulings and the rules were you know main always a main topic and i, I was curious you know, that Justin, you know, he's such a great player and such a great guy that he didn't kind of try and manipulate his stance that maybe a lot of or some other players might do to kind of make it appear more like he was standing on that drainage area. Um, he took his normal stance. And when the rules official came over, you know, there was there was um, no option for that rules official to do other than to not grant him relief because of the way Justin's stance was. And, um, you know, he could have called for another rule. He could have called for another official. The player always has that option to bring in the second opinion. Um, Justin went with the ruling that he got the first time. And, and unfortunately, um, I think it affected him more than he thought it would. Um, if he had to do it all over again, you know, I'm not sure that he would have approached it the same way he may have taken a little bit of a different stance so his left toe maybe was actually standing on the drainage drainage area so he would have gotten relief but again he's such a stand-up guy and a great player that you know he comments that he made afterward that the mics picked up that you know kind of he was upset about it because he knows that a number of guys would have done what i just suggested he might do uh the next time around it was a really interesting situation it really was all right. Uh, for our viewers, can you explain how hard it is to produce a live golf event? I mean, the camera work is amazing, but those guys have to follow the ball, you know, being hit. Um, and what kind of like with the new technology, like the top tracer, has it made it a lot easier to kind of for those guys to do that? Yeah. It, I mean, geez, producing a golf tournament, I'll start with that. I mean, um, it is. And, and I'm not just saying this because I did it for almost 30 years, but um, it is the hardest sport to present on television. I mean, just imagine, you know, almost every other stick and ball sport, um, if you point the camera at the ball, you're covering the action. Um, so, but in golf, there are, you know, at any one time, 75 sticks and 75 balls, and they're playing on 18 different fields of play 
and everybody's playing at the same time and there are no television timeouts. So, you know, the producer really has to, um, you know, kind of tell the story or tell whatever story he wants to, to tell. And um, you have to decide what shots to show live. You have to decide which shots you're gonna record, um, how you're gonna weave those things in and out between the live shots. And then you've always got, you know, you've got, a, you know, a half a dozen to maybe even more commercials that you have to get in. Um, so it's, it's really hard. And, you know, I see all the criticism of, of NBC's coverage of the U.S. Open, and I agree with some of it, but most of it, I just sit back and say, oops, sorry about that. Most of it, I just sit back and say, you don't realize how hard this is to do um, because it is really difficult. But the, the technicians, the camera guys, I tried to follow a golf ball once with a, with a hard camera, a golf television camera. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it in a million years. And those guys are great. The tracer technology and the advancement of, of technologies like, uh, you know, the radio frequency cameras that you don't have to cable. You don't have to run a hundred thousand feet of cable on a golf course anymore. You know, you have line of sight communication in terms of the camera. And so you can always get a picture uh, the, the the DVRs, which are, you know, it used to be when I first started out, we had actual tape machines like a Betamax, you'd hit record and play, you'd hit record, you'd have to record the entire shot, let it finish, give it 10 seconds of pads, stop, rewind, and cue it up. Now these digital recorders can play and record at the same time. So it makes, I mean, that makes broadcasting a golf tournament a lot easier because you don't have to wait for a shot to finish and rewind it before you can show it on the air. It can be happening at the same time. There are a million things that technology, advancements in technology have improved um, golf coverage on television and made the producer's life a lot easier. Hope that answered your question. Yeah, thank you. And very interesting. So you, obviously we're all familiar with Scott Van Pelt, with ESPN now. You've seen him during his youth at the Golf Channel. <laughs> how would you say, how would you compare the Golf Channel, Scott Van Pelt versus ESPN, Scott Van Pelt, and how have you been able to grow with his career over the years? He's the greatest. Um, you know, Scott was, I first met Scott, you know, in the mid-90s at Golf Channel. Um, and he was, he was uh, fresh out of school. And our, our uh, coordinating producer, a guy named Paul Farnsworth, um, knew of him and was friends with him and basically invited him up to take a job with us at Golf Channel in the tape library. I mean, he was, and Kelly Tillman worked in the, in the earliest years of the Golf Channel in the tape library. And what that was, was basically we had recordings of you know, golf tournaments and, and golf shows that had happened throughout the course of history. And if a producer or a person on that was working on Golf Central, the news show needed footage of, say, Corey Pavin, they would go back to this little window and Scott Van Pelt would come up to the window and the producer would say, I need Corey Pavin highlights. And Scott Van Pelt would look in his, on the computer and go back and and find a uh, you know, videotape that had Corey Pavin highlights and give it to the producer so he could use it in his show. And you, know, you knew from the very beginning, Scott was a, a, a really engaging, 
funny, interesting guy. And, um, you know, we were, this is kind of a long story, but it's a funny one. We were um, getting some criticism in the earliest days of Golf Channel uh, in our live tournament broadcast because people, the few people that were watching, <laughs> some of them got upset because we didn't show their favorite player on TV. And a lot of times this was a brother or a parent or an uncle or, you know, just a fan. And, you know, say that uh, Jeff Brejo, we didn't show Jeff Brejo during the course of a tournament that we were televising. And we would get complaints. People would call the Golf Channel or write letters to the Golf Channel saying, you know, you're the Golf Channel. You should be showing my son, Jeff Brejo. So our CEO, COO at the time was a guy named Gary Stevenson, who's a brilliant guy who's now with uh, MLS uh, Soccer. Um, you know, he, he had the, the brilliant idea to have a show that was a half an hour. And the only thing we would do for a half an hour would, show lead, would be show leaderboards from golf tournaments around the country. So it aired on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And it was called Leaderboard Report. And they would, you know, the, the idea was a person would sit there and say, now let's take a look at all the scores from the Nike Pensacola Open. And then we'd put music and we'd scroll the leaderboard so that Jeff Brejo's mom or sister could see what Jeff Brejo shot that day. And they needed a host for that. And Gary went to Scott Van Pelt and said, I think you're a funny guy. I think you'd be good on TV. I want you to host this show. And, but here's the deal. You come on the air and you say, this is Scott, I'm Scott Van Pelt and this is Leaderboard Report. And then the next thing you say is, I'm Scott Van Pelt and this was Leaderboard Report a half an hour later. I don't want you to say anything else. I just want you to introduce the show and then at the end of the show, close the show. So Scott said, great, I want to do it. I want to be on TV. That's you know my goal. So the first night, Scott Van Pelt gets on, says, I'm Scott Van Pelt. This is Leaderboard Report. It was a PGA Tour event. And he started making comments about some of the scores. And one of them was that I remember, I think I tell the story in the book, but he basically, it was Corey Pavin who shot 77 that day or something. And Scott said, oh, 77 today for Corey Pavin. I guess he'll be sleeping in the garage tonight. And then started interjecting some of that humor that he is so well known for today. Um, you know, Gary ended up loving it. Everybody ended up loving it. And, and the leaderboard report on the Golf Channel was Scott Van Pelt's entry into broadcast television in terms of being an on-air talent. And he is, I mean, if he's not the best in the business, he is certainly one of the best in the business. And, and it was great. And also, I, one more quick, Scott, sorry to spend so much time on Scott, but one more quick Scott Van Pelt story. We were in the newsroom one day and Scott was sitting there and we were talking about Tiger Woods who had just won his third, sixth straight USGA title and third straight US Amateur in 1996 and was about to turn pro. And I, being the brilliant, uh, you know, uh, soothsayer that I am, bet Scott Van Pelt, I said, I'll bet you $100 he never wins as a pro. I actually bet Scott Van Pelt $100 that Tiger Woods would never win as a professional, <laughs> clearly, I uh, that was the, that was the best hundred dollars I ever spent, and uh, I was happy happy to pay off that bet. Great story. 
Uh, you produced in the 90s of Skins games, which yeah. uh, now uh, would be kind of the equivalent to the match. What do you remember most about doing that? And what do you think of these this new match <laughs> events that they have been doing the last couple of years? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first question first. And uh, the, the thing I remember most about it was being how, how incredibly lucky I felt um, to get a job with what at the time was a company called Olmeyer Communications. The Skins Games was Don Olmeyer's idea. He was a legend in, in, uh, in, te in television broadcasting. He, you know, he was the brains behind the original Monday Night Football. And um, it, it, it was just like an amazing, amazing opportunity to be so lucky to be involved in that and be around in, in the first, first, you know, set of Skins Games, folks like Arnold Palmer and and, you know, Reg Norman and Curtis Strange and Nick Faldo and, you know, how nervous I was, you know, kind of to be around those guys. But the thing I remember most is getting yelled at by Don Olmeyer. Um, I was uh, part of the crew that was responsible for recording the shots, even though there were only four players, there were still times where we had to record shots, especially when we were in commercial. And so Don, you know, we were doing the skins and it was like, Trevino would hit a shot and I would hear Don say, don't need Trevino. And so I would keep recording and then it would be Faldo, you know, and Faldo would hit his shot and Don would say, don't need Faldo. And then um, we're coming back from commercial. And the next thing I hear is Don say, okay, cue up Trevino and cue up Faldo. Well, stupidly, I had recorded them both on the same machine. So it's kind of like what, what I was talking about earlier. We had, you know, a certain number of machines so that I couldn't cue them both up at the same time. So he had to show one, do something else while I queued up the next shot and show the next shot. So I just sheepishly got on the headset um, to the director who was one of my best friends in the world now. And I said, Steve, uh, I got bad news. I've got those shots, but they're on the same machine. And Steve, the great friend that he was said, you tell Don. <laughs> so, <laughs> So I went in Don's there and I said, Don, sorry, uh, but, and I told him I had both shots on the same machine and he, there was a door that separated the main production area from our tape room. And Don slid open the door, rolled back in his chair, stuck his head through the door and said, what the F is going on in tape? And close, slammed the door shut. Ne you know, I guess needless to say, I never made that mistake again, but, uh, that was that was a memorable moment in my television career. And the, the, the other thing I remember most was a Trevino shot. It was on the 10th hole. He was in the fairway and he holds his second shot. He hit a wedge and he knocked it in the hole and everybody was going crazy. And, you know, obviously in the skins games, all the players were miked. and Trevino turned turned to the crowd and said, I don't know what you guys are all going crazy about. That's what I was aiming at. So, um, you know, just little moments like that in the skins game. It was a great experience um, doing those skins games. And what I can say about the matches, I think they've stretched it a little too thin. Um, you know, the skins game ran out of gas after a number of years. I think doing two of these things a year, um, you get, I think you, it dilutes the product. Um, I still think the second one with Tiger and Brady and Peyton and, and um, uh, I can't remember who the other pro was, oh. Phil. Phil was the was the greatest one they've done and probably will never be topped. I mean, that was great, great, great entertainment golf television. So, you know, I think that 
it's like anything else. Too much of a good thing is probably not good for you. Okay, thank you. Bill. So, what golf event do you remember most from the golf channel or your time in the golf industry? Wow, what a great question, man. I guess that's, I hate this cliche answer, but it's kind of like, you know, how do you pick among your, you know, do you pick your favorite among your children? I mean, we had so many fun events. Um, I, I guess I would say right off the top of my head um, would be the Nike Lakeland Classic. And I say that because Casey Martin won it. And um, Casey Martin, as as I think every all the golf fans know, was a you know had a had a disability and um, you know a congenital disease that limited his you know ability to walk. He had problem with his leg and, and has since had to have it amputated. But he um, he was playing in this Nike Tour event and he uh, you know had to have a cart. And it was a big controversy, but, you know, he, he persevered and he won the event. And that's one that, that I'll, I'll remember always. Um, another one was a Canadian tour event. The first time we put microphones on players and a guy named Eamon Brady won, won the event wearing a microphone. And it was kind of like it opened the floodgates for other players to say, you know, I'll wear Golf Channel's technology or I'll try you know, I'll try the heart rate monitor or I'll try, I'll wear a microphone. I mean, if this guy can wear the microphone and actually win the event, um, you know, that would be fantastic. And that, you know, again, there are other, you know, my first Solheim cup, uh, my first champions tour major that I produced. Um, and you know, the first event we ever produced, which was the PGA tour qualifying tournament in December of 1990 in, uh, in 1995 that, you know, was it, we actually produced the event in December of 94 as a test event. It, it didn't, we hadn't launched yet, but we had the crew, everything was out, the trucks were all fired up and, and Joe Gibbs, who was the, uh, you know, the, 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 the golf channel was his brainchild was in the truck. And we went on, when we went on the air, uh, he started crying. He was so proud of that his vision had come to life that and we made all of us made that happen that um that that's another moment i'll never forget but you know i produced hundreds and hundreds of golf events and and they they're they're all memorable in one way or another but you know that's a great question and it, uh, thank you for asking it because it helped me think back on some of my my best times at golf channel all right, sweet. The U.S. Open is concluding today. Uh, what is your favorite U.S. Open memory? And uh, if you had to pick a winner today, who would that be? Yeah, favorite U.S. Open memory. Wow. I've been a golf, you know, geez, Troy, I've been a golf fan for 60 years. <laughs> There's been a lot of U.S. Opens. Um, you know, I, I've been to a couple. I was lucky enough. My wife uh, worked at the USGA for six years, so um you know, actually being, you know, kind of on the grounds and inside the ropes for, for a handful of them was, uh, was really special. Um, you know, probably, gosh, you, you know, it's, it, you're hard pressed to beat Tiger, Tiger beating Rocco Mediate in that playoff at Torrey Pines and, and that putt that he made on the 72nd hole that's sent it into a playoff. Um, 
you know, if you're a golf fan, that's something that will resonate with you forever and ever and ever. So that that's one of my favorite memories. Um, today, that's another great question. Um, you know, you'd like to, I'd love it if Keegan Bradley won just because of the hometown, you know, being a kid from, from the Northeast and, and what that, you know, kind of walk up 18 would be like for him. And he's been a friend of, he was a friend of the golf channel for a long time when he first started playing, um, playing on the, what was then the, the nationwide tour. And, um, I was great friends with his aunt, Pat Bradley, who, um, you know, ESPN golf and the golf channel. We showed a lot of her, uh, as she played in LPGA tour events, but for me, it would be hard to think that John Rahm's not going to win. Uh, I just think he's, you know, he's too good and too tough. And, you know, that he's just got, you know, he's got all the talent in the world. So if I was going to pick somebody to win, um, I think it would be John Rahm. Yeah. And that's kind of been a pattern the last couple of years with us opens, you know, uh, Kepka won a couple of years in a row. Yep. Rahm won last year. So, all right, great. I had Zalatoris on Thursday. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to stick with Will Zalatoris and I had him at four under. Troy can attest to that on my Facebook post and some other guest appearances that I've made throughout the week. So smart guy. You're a smart guy. He's going to do it at some point. He's got too good a game and he's got the, you know, it's just, he's mentally tough and that wouldn't shock me. That wouldn't shock me one bit. So great pick, great pick by you. Okay. Keith, I want to ask your take on this live tour. I know this is sure. a big topic going on lately sure. and uh, Will has a follow-up questions on that, but uh, what is what is your take on it? Is it good for the game? Do you not like it? Like it? What are your thoughts? Um, I, you know, putting I'm I'm going to separate this because I'm a sports fan. Um, you know, golf and and baseball are my two favorite sports, and um, I just as a fan, putting all the geopolitics aside because I'm not a politician. I don't deal with those kinds of things. That you know, it's that's that's way above my pay grade. Um, I, I kind of like it. Um, I think that, you know, anything that, that kind of shakes up, shakes things up a little bit, I, you know, the, the format is, is different. The 54 holes, the shotgun start as a fan, um, you know, you can't, uh, for me anyway, you can't not like everybody being out on the golf course at the same time. I mean, yesterday we saw at the U.S. Open. The leaders didn't go off until almost four o'clock Eastern time. I mean, that's all day long. If you're a golf fan to watch impactful golf start on the golf course. And with this shotgun start, you know, everybody's out there at the same time. It takes four and a half to five hours to play an entire round and you're done. So, you know, in this age of trying to condense things to make them more viewer friendly, you know, like cricket has done with cricket 20. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they basically changed the game of cricket. So it doesn't last 10 days. It, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the cricket match can be played in one afternoon. And, you know, those are the kind of things that are happening one in the cricket world because they want to be an Olympic sport. And they know that to be an Olympic sport, they have to change their model to be able to be more, more, sorry. Stop that. More viewer friendly, more, you know, more fan friendly. So in that regard, I like it. Um, I think disruption is good. You know, change is scary for people. 
but disruption is good. Usually good things happen from it. So, uh, you know, and they certainly have deep pockets. So I don't think, you know, all the criticism that I see on Twitter that it's going to be short-lived or it's not going to last or, um, you know, they, they have, the money is behind it to, to, to follow through with what I think they have as a multi-year plan. So I don't see it going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and we'll have to see what happens. So speaking of that, who do you think is the next big name <laughs> or the next big names that could potentially go to the live tour? It feels like it's more of an international based tour. So people from the US, Europe, South South Africa, Australia, whoever, whatever can be a part of this thing. It doesn't matter where you come from. And it feels like it's a more um, diverse background, if you will, versus PGA's mainly Americans and all that good stuff. Who do you see going to the live next? Man, that's a great, I mean, you know, I've seen the rumors. I've heard the rumors. You know, the rumors are, I I mean, I guess they announced last week that, that Patrick Reed and Bryson DeChambeau um, have joined. Um, you hear the rumors that Kepka is, you know, is probably going to announce. Um, I just, you know, you, you, you look at it and I just, you know, I know the stance, I know the stance of the PGA tour is they're kind of in protection mode. They want to keep, you know, their top players from, from bouncing around between different, different places to play. They want to protect their events um, which are played opposite of these live tour events. But, um, you know, in, t- in terms of predictions, I have no idea. I would have, I mean, if you would have asked me a month ago, I probably would have said I would have never expected Dustin Johnson to join up. So um, I think that, you know, the allure of the money is very powerful. And as more guys go, it, makes that path easy easier for others to follow so um it could be anybody i mean it could be anybody <laughs> uh what do you, i mean what do you guys think who do you guys think are you know so i my personal feeling is this like let's say a live tour player wins the major championship like the u.s open or the British Open in a month or so at St. Andrews, a lot of these other guys are thinking, what are they doing on that tour that are causing those players to win major championships? So I think it's not going to be an obvious answer right away. I think it's going to go off of can live players when in the majors if that answer is yes going forward then you may see a more balanced field between both tours if the live players don't produce in the majors then it's not going to be as competitive in the live tour as it is the PPA tour but I know war is not going speed isn't going (laughs) Justin Thomas isn't going. Those two aren't going anywhere because they have that allegiance to the PGA Tour. So those big, big stars wouldn't go. But I wouldn't 
would be surprised if like a Justin Rose or a Tommy Fleetwood or a player like that because Tommy Fleetwood has had success overseas, but he hasn't had success on U.S. soil on the PGA. So that's kind of somebody that I could see go towards live. Yeah, another name I have is Victor Hovland. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, you know, he's uh, had he hasn't put the success in America uh, yet, went to Oklahoma State. So, I mean, he has the American connection. But again, from Norway, another one of those international players that would probably like that kind of schedule. So that would be my next uh, prediction. <laughs> so we'll see. Right. We'll see. Yeah. It's interesting. It sure is. It sure has shaken up the golf world. Yeah, I mean, I think eventually the PGA Tour hopefully will come around. I mean, there's been involved in all sports, ABA merged with the NBA, yeah. you know, um, NFL, same kind of thing. So eventually, hopefully, you can come up with some sort of compromise to let these guys uh, play wherever they want. Um, there's they're not under contract, I don't think, through the PGA, so uh, right. they should be able to kind of make their own decisions. I mean, that's my take on it. So yeah, I agree. And it's all about other ways to watch golf because us three know how great this sport is. Whether so, hey, I'll watch a golf tournament before a football game. But anywho, (laughs) I enjoy playing golf and I can relate playing golf. That's like, oh my goodness, I wish I could hit a golf shot like that. Even their worst golf shots, I'd be celebrating hitting it 300 yards. In the right hand rough, if it gives me 120 to the hole, easy nine iron, easy pitching wedge, all that fun stuff. But yeah, I agree. It is a different, you know, and different, you know, and I think the world is changing or has changed. And, you know, it's, I'm sure that they would love to have a traditional broadcast outlet, but streaming is, I mean, people are used to streaming and it's a different opportunity. You can, you know, I mean, I have a, 29 year old son who doesn't own a television you know he watches everything on his computer or his phone so um you know i think that they're trying to attract younger younger viewers to the game and again the the condensed time period that they're asking people to commit to it and the you know kind of every shot matters format because everybody's playing at the same time and you put it on platforms that that the younger generation is used to consuming whatever they're going to consume on i think all of that is a is a pretty decent recipe okay what else you got will so what led you to decide to become an author post golf (laughs) career oh that's a great question too you guys ask a lot of good questions um you know uh and i'll try again not to be so long-winded but um my parents passed away in 2006 and 2007. And um, my wife and I were at their home, you know, doing what, doing what kids do, you know, go, basically going through all their stuff. Um, and my folks were, you know, not to be braggadocious, but pretty accomplished people. Um, my parents started a TV station in Reno, Nevada. Um, they, you know, my dad had earned my, my dad and my mom had earned, you know, a number of awards. My dad's in the Nevada Broadcasting Hall of Fame. Um, you know, we were going through boxes and all of these, they had all of this memorabilia. Um, and 
my wife, I met my wife later in life, so she didn't get to spend a lot of time with my parents, sadly. Um, and as we were going through this stuff, you know, she just said, she said to me, she said, I had no idea, you know, that your parents, you know, accomplished so much and, you know, letters from presidents and, you know, just all kinds of things. And, and um, you know, she looked at me and she said, don't let this be you, you know, don't let this be your kids when you're gone looking in a box and saying, man, I had no idea dad won an Emmy and I had no idea dad, you know, helped start two television networks. And I had no idea that dad, you know, knew Tiger Woods and, you know, like actually interviewed him a number of times and, you know, knew Arnold Palmer well enough that Arnold Palmer knew him by name. And, you know, she just said, don't let this be your kids. And she said, you know, get out a journal and start writing down stories about what you've done in your career that you can leave for them that, you know, that they can look back on and, 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 and have this as a memory of you. And so I started doing that. You know, I just started writing down stories from my growing up, you know, around my parents starting the TV station to my career. And, um, you know, about halfway through that process, I, I looked at it and said, you know, this, this could be a book. <laughs> I, you know, I could, I could turn this into an actual book that other golf fans or other people, you know, might be interested in reading. So that's how Cover Me Boys, I'm going in. Tales of the Tube from a Broadcast Brat came about. So, um, uh, and then I, because of the book and a number of other things, my time at Golf Channel ended in 2013. And, you know, I enjoyed writing Cover Me Boys so much that I thought, well, you know, basically I've been, you know, telling stories my entire career. Um, why not try a mystery? Why not try fiction? So um, that big flies, was my first my first mystery followed that up with the flower girl murder then i wrote murphy murphy in the case of serious crisis then song girl and right now i'm about two-thirds of the way through a sequel to murphy murphy um, where he works with the uh, commission on cliches so um you know it's just it kind of evolved into a into a second career and a second life and and i'm loving every minute of it Okay, so are all four of those murder mystery books connected or they all have different stories? They, they all have different stories. So, um, but Song Girl and the Flower Girl murder are connected. It's the same character, uh, the detective um, and a couple of uh, moved from North Carolina to Colorado Springs, um, which is where we're living now. Uh, so those two are connected, um, but the other ones are standalone. Um, Murphy Murphy, like I said, what I, Murphy Murphy, the idea behind Murphy Murphy was one of the things I abhorred as a producer was when my announcers use cliches, um, you know, and I try, always tried to, you know, you know, just whip that out of them, you know, find, you know, find them a dollar to toward the end of the year party or, you know, just, but um, I thought, can I write a, can I write an entire book? trying to jam in as many cliches as possible. So I wrote Murphy Murphy, which is a cliche, I'm, I'm not cliches, redundant phrases. So I'm, I'm, I'm already jumping ahead to the next book. It's redundancies, redundant phrases like free gift or ATM machine or uh, uh, unexpected surprise. You know, these are all redundant phrases that are, you know, you don't need to use them. So I thought, can I, can I write a book putting as many redundant phrases in it as possible. And that was Murphy Murphy in the case of serious crisis. And I have more than 120 redundant phrases sprinkled throughout the dialogue and the, and the, and the writing of the book. 
So, and the next one I'm working on is Murphy Murphy, who's the detective, uh, now is caught up in a caper that involves the commission on cliches. So I'm doing the same thing, trying to get as many cliches into the story as I possibly can. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fun. It's fun. It's trying to come up with wacky ideas and, and, you know, different ways to, to make the books different than your traditional, you know, murder mystery or, or crime, you know, crime drama, like song girl, the character, the song girl character in song girl has a, an accident, uh, is in a coma and awakes from the coma only able to speak in song titles so her character in song girl she can only speak in song titles um which was i thought a little different twist to your traditional murder mystery so i got a question about that uh, with that book was it pretty difficult to uh kind of get around the copyrighted stuff from um various uh, singers yeah. and bands that's a great, great, great question because my original idea was that she could only speak in song lyrics. So I bought all of these lyrics books, you know, from, I, I think I had 20 books of song lyrics that I was going through with a highlighter, you know, like, okay, this, this lyric in this song could work as what somebody might say, you know, in, in casual conversation. And I got about two thirds of the way through the book. And I thought, you know, I thought that I, I asked myself that same question. I'm going to have to get permission or, you know, how do I, at the end of the book, thank all the publishers and songwriters, you know, for their lyrics. And I called my brother who happens to be an entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles. And he said, you got to stop what you're doing right now. You can't, you can't do it. He said, you'll get sued by every single agent, publisher, songwriter in the country. You can't use song lyrics without permission. And they're not going to give you permission they're going to charge you. And if you don't pay and use them anyway, they're going to sue you. And I said, oh my God, I've written two thirds of a book. What am I going to do? And he said, well, the silver lining in this cloud is that song titles are fair game. So there is no restriction. There's no copyright. There's no, um, you know, you have to pay a licensing fee for song titles. So I just had to go back to the drawing board and go back to all the dialogue. And instead of using song lyrics, I had to change that to song titles. So luckily for me, that was a loophole that my brother pointed out to me. But if I had gone down that road and published that book, I, you and I wouldn't be talking right now because I'd probably be in the poorhouse somewhere and you wouldn't even know who I am. <laughs> okay, so Keith, somebody wants to buy your book or check them out, where, where can we get these? Amazon, can't you get, you can get anything on Amazon, right? So Amazon would be one place. Uh, just just type in Keith Hirschland author and my book should come up. Um, I have a great team. Uh, my publisher is Beacon Publishing Group. So their website is beaconpublishinggroup.com. Um, all my books are, are, that they've published are there. And I, you know, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Bobby Collins and that team there. Um, cause they've been fantastic. And then I have my own website. Uh, it's Keith Hirschland, one word, K E I T H H I R S H L A N D.com. And all the books are available there. And thanks for asking. Thanks for letting me put that out there. Okay. And we'll have a link for all those. Uh, I'm sure everybody loves a good murder mystery. So, uh, <laughs> I suggest everybody go grab one of his books. Uh, my next question, uh, for you is, uh, what we're both based in Minnesota. 
So what okay. was your favorite Minnesota golf course? And I got a couple for you to choose from. Maybe there's one that's not on the list. Interlochen in, in Dinah, Minnesota, and Hazeltine yeah. in Casca. Uh, which one of those was your favorite, or do you have a different one? You know, we 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 did, I would say, it probably Hazeltine, just because of the history, and it's so cool. Um, it's such a great, great golf course. We were lucky enough to play it a couple of times. We televised the LPGA event that they played at Interlochen. Um, great time there and was, we're lucky enough when, when we were there to go play um, Hazeltine. Uh, those, I think those are the only two that I'm, from, sadly, that I'm familiar with in Minnesota because I know there are a million great golf courses. Um, but uh, again, just, you know, there's something about and I'm sure you guys can appreciate this, just, you know, teeing it up on a tee box or walking down a fairway or putting on a green where you know the greatest players in the world have done the same thing, you know, and to, to Will's point earlier, you know, just to be able to, you know, you're not going to replicate their scores or play anywhere near as well as they did, but, you know, you can hit that one great eight iron that, you know, lands and stops six feet from the hole and you make a birdie and you're like, you know, I just made a birdie on a hole that Tiger Woods also made a birdie on. And, and so that's the, the, the beauty of golf. You know, as bad as we all are at it, you know, there are those, those magic moments when you hit a shot pure or you make a putt, make a 40-foot putt. Uh, best players in the world couldn't have done it better than you just did it. So um, that's one of the things that I think is, is just so special about the game of golf. I'll never be able to hit a hundred mile an hour fastball. You know, I'll never be able to dunk a basketball, um, but I can, you know, I can roll in a 30 footer on occasion and, you know, that's as good as you can do it. So, um, but we, I loved Hazeltine played it, uh, I think three or four times and um, loved it every time. So I got two questions for you. Okay. One, you said that you've t talked and interviewed Tiger Woods multiple times. How would you identify, what would you say to the average person about Tiger Woods, just seeing him out off the golf course, number one? And then number two, you said that you love to be a storyteller. How would somebody off the streets how would you advise somebody off the streets to become a author or writer of a book if you could tell them in the short summary? Yeah. Uh, first, Tiger was, you know, we were lucky. And again, I've said this on, on a number of occasions, Golf Channel, um, January of 1995. Tiger turned pro in 1996. Um, I believe with all my heart that the Golf Channel would have succeeded because there are so many just diehard golf fans that they were, you know, a, a 24 hour a day, seven day a week, 365 day a year network devoted to the sport um, had to succeed because of that. But without Tiger Woods, um, we wouldn't have been as successful as quickly. He I moved the needle in 1996 um, like nobody else. And he continues to move the needle in 2022 
like nobody else um, as long as he plays. And I hope he does. I hope he competes in at Augusta and at the British Open for another 10 years because I think he can still win those tournaments. Um, he'll still move the needle. So Golf Channel succeeded because of the hard work and creativity of a number of talented people. But it mostly conceded, in my opinion, because Tiger Woods turned pro in 1996. And when he did, he did not have, obviously, the status um, that he had two years later. So we actually saw him. He played in tournaments that we televised in 1996 a half a dozen times. Um, he played the BC Open in Endicott, New York. He played uh, the Valero Texas Open, which was not Valero at the time. He played uh, the Quad City Classic where he almost won. He ended up losing to Ed Fiore in the last round. We thought we had Tiger's first win. Um, he played in the Disney tournament at the end of the year. So when Tiger came out, we were lucky enough to be able to spend time with him. Um, he And he was um, at that age, you know, and at that time, um, incredibly gracious, incredibly interesting, interested in what we were doing, a big fan of the Golf Channel, um, and always uh, was willing to do things for us when we asked him. And I mean, don't get me wrong, we had to, you know, it was like we had to work around his schedule and we had to, you know, we were at the whim of Mark Steinberg and his team, but you know, we, we would put in a request to, we'd like to talk to Tiger Woods on Wednesday before the tournament. And we would get a note back saying, if you can be ready at three 30 on the practice tee, Tiger will be there. And he always was always on time. If not early, always spent as much time as we needed him to spend. Um, incredibly gracious signed autographs. Um, and then of course, you know, he became Tiger Woods and we never saw him again. <laughs> on the golf channel because he didn't play in those tournaments anymore which you know made made perfect sense so i would say to people you know obviously as he became more famous and 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 ends on his time became more and more he became more guarded less you know kind of less forthcoming but in those early years those first years that we had him um it, it couldn't have been a better experience as far as you know, advising people on storytelling or writing. Um, you know, my, my, first, my first piece of advice would be just do it. If you think you have a story, write it down. Um, you know, don't be afraid of whether or not you think anybody else is gonna like it because that, that is the number one killer of creativity in my mind is if you start worrying about what other people are gonna think about what you do or what you write. So. Um, have a conviction, you know, uh, tell your story, um, put it down on paper. And then the next thing would be to get a good editor. <laughs> uh, because as you guys know, I mean, being in the business, you know, I mean, things matter, punctuation, you know, keeping it in the right tense, um, you know, just the, the nuts and bolts of actually doing the work whether it's doing a, a, a podcast like this or writing a book or producing a golf tournament are the things that are going to set that foundation to make you successful. But um, I would never discourage anybody from, if they have an interest in writing um, to, you know, grab a pen and a piece of paper and start putting it down because everybody, everybody has a story. Everybody has something to say. And 
you know, everybody should be encouraged in every way, shape or form possible to, to, to put their story out there. And don't be afraid of whether or not anybody else is accepting of it. All right, Keith, I got one little last fun question for you. You're from Denver. Have you been watching the Stanley Cup and are you a big Avalanche fan? Uh, you know, I'm not from Denver. We live in Colorado Springs. I'm from Northern Nevada, like I said. But yes, we have been watching the Avalanche. We have become um, diehard Avalanche fans. Last night was a an incredibly surprising uh, turn of events. I mean, I don't think anybody expected a seven to nothing game on either side of this Stanley Cup. Um, I, I have I have come to hockey reluctantly. Um, you know, we didn't play hockey when I was growing up. We didn't have a, we had a minor league hockey team for a couple of years in Reno. Um, I think the Stanley Cup playoffs are among the most exciting um, sporting events uh, of any year. I mean, it's, nothing gets better than when you get down to the, you know, to the conference finals or the, or the Stanley Cup finals. And that, you know, that, that do or die moment every game um, is incredibly exciting. Uh, but I'm a Bay Area sports fan. Growing up in Reno, San Francisco Bay Area was the closest thing we had to professional sports. So I grew up a San Francisco Giant and San Francisco 49er fan. Um, and those are my, you know, I would say those are my two favorite teams. But um, yes, 100% go Avalanche. <laughs> All right. Uh, your website, keithhirschland.com. Uh, I have your book here. This Everybody go out and get this one. Uh, cover me, boys. I'm going in. Uh, also, Big Flies, Murphy Murphy, The Flower Girl and Sound Girl are your other ones. Uh, go to Amazon.com. I suggest that everybody get a copy of at least one of those and try them out. And then, <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, thanks a lot, Keith, for joining us today. Uh, anything else, Will, before we go? No, I am good, and much and happy Father's Day to you. Um, you too. Enjoy the U.S. Open, and we'll find out a winner in the upcoming hours. Yeah, well, it was All great right. being with you guys. I really enjoyed it. You know, I didn't know either of you, you two, before today, and uh, I hope we can do this again sometime. But it was a real pleasure being with you. Awesome, Keith. Thanks for joining us. We'll uh, we'll talk again. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks. Thanks.